0: So on the first day of our uh, retreat together, we had a question and answer period. And someone had asked a question about, well, what do you think has been the changes that you've seen in your uh, experience since you all have been doing this practice? And I didn't answer the question, but I was thinking about it uh, since then. I think it's a good question to uh, ask yourself when you've been doing something for 20 years, like why you're still doing that. And uh, I thought, you know, one of the things that's changed for me is I feel like I have a generally more friendly attitude towards myself, towards my mind, uh, towards my body, towards whatever comes up in my experience, uh, and also towards others. So generally like a sense of friendliness uh, pervading there, which definitely sometimes has its uh, aberrations, right? Uh, But I notice those aberrations more and then can kind of uh, cause a re-correction in that. Also that I feel like there's more of a sort of spaciousness of mind that's there, which is related to that also. So the mind can kind of hang out without doing anything, uh, without thinking or uh, concocting things and feeling more comfortable with that. And then related to that is just a sense of greater interest and curiosity about uh, life and about things that are uh, happening in my experience and in the world. So that wasn't always the case for me. Like there's definitely have been changes through doing uh, this practice, the vipassana practice, the insight meditation practice, uh, and then also a lot through doing the metta practice, the practice of the loving kindness, which we've been doing in the uh, afternoons. And that's been one of my main practices for uh, at least five years. I did that as a main practice in my daily life, uh, in on retreats, on shorter retreats, on longer retreats, one month, three month, different ones, um, in the grocery store, on the subway, you know, uh, all different places, and I really feel like that uh, helped to transform the way that I approach uh, myself, my life, other people. So I want to talk a little bit about metta today, about uh, that practice. So most of the time we've been uh, sharing with you the practices of awareness. So paying attention to what's going on in your experience. The vipassana practice. And uh, so you sit there and pay attention and then you walk and pay attention. And then what is it that you find? So I remember uh, one of my teachers early on saying, you know, when you do this insight practice, you get a lot of insight, but a lot of it is bad news in the beginning, right? (laughs) So in the beginning you find like, oh, wow, I didn't know that I was so not present, right? Uh, or you might find like, wow, like there's all this anger and I didn't know that, that I was, had this anger, right? Or, uh, you know, different memories come up and you're like, oh, I thought I, I uh, forgive that person in third grade who took my lunch, but <laughs> it seems like not since here it's coming up in my uh, memory and like dogging me for hours, right? So what's going on with that, right? We also find that, I uh, mean, notice that uh, the mind and uh, what's coming up for us is a lot of thoughts about ourselves, sort of bolstering the sense of self in some ways. So there's a, a joke about um, going on a, a date with someone who's very uh, self-absorbed and you go on date with this person and at dinner they're just talking about themselves all the time. So they're saying, oh, blah, 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 my school, blah, 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 my job, blah, 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 my accomplishments blah, 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 how great I am, right? And then uh, you get to the uh, dessert time and they're like, oh, you know, I've been talking about myself all night, I'm so sorry, what do you think of me, right? (laughs) So it's kind of a joke because how could someone be so ridiculously self-absorbed? And yet, (laughs) when you pay attention to your own mind, you can see that actually the mind is really quite uh, absorbed in this story of the self. So a lot of what comes up is these very self-referential ideas, um, many of which don't actually have any uh, basis per se. Uh, <laughs> so I was sitting on retreat um, at the forest refuge, just um, around the bend there uh, a couple of months ago. And I remember sitting in the meditation hall uh, and this was like a, a three week retreat. Um, and there was one guy who was sitting in the meditation hall, um, relatively close to me. And then one day uh, he picked up his stuff and he moved to another uh, cushion. And uh, and so really, the mind came up with thoughts like, "Oh, he moved because of me, right?" And there was really no basis for this whatsoever. And it was interesting because I caught that thought before the mind made up a story about why, right? And I could see that it was kind of like teetering between which way to go because it could have been the like, um, "Because I'm so great and I'm such a good meditator, and so he's so intimidated," or you know. <laughs> Or it could be like, because I'm fidgeting so much and it's difficult to be around me and I'm so bad. And you know, so the mind hadn't decided which way to go with the story <laughs> yet. But yet, this, you know, the self-referential thing was clearly uh, there in some way. And there was no basis whatsoever for it. You know? I have no idea. Um, but the mind is constantly uh, doing this. right So this, this meta practice is actually a way of in some ways breaking that spell. right. So this spell, which is kind of like this trance of uh, our idea of ourselves being the center of the universe, right? So it actually is a way of uh, connecting with other people and recognizing, you know, just as I wish to be happy, just as I wish to be well, like so do other people, right? And connecting with this sense of kindness uh, that we can have for ourselves, for people we love, and then kind of radically spreading that to even the people who we don't know, right, so people who are neutral people, and then radically to people who are our enemies, who are difficult for us, so I want to talk a little bit about those different um, aspects as well. So I've been very inspired um, as the uh, path of practice unfolded for me with um, reading and hearing the stories about the, um, the Buddha himself, so this guy here. Uh, who was actually a person right, who was born in 2,600 years ago in uh, Northern India. And when he was uh, 29 years old, so in the potential to come to this retreat, in fact, you know, <laughs> he was had sort of existential crisis. And he thought, you know, uh, I want to understand what things are about. This is sort of the, the short version of his story. He went off and did spiritual practice for six years. He learned from this teacher, learned from that teacher. Uh, didn't find what he was looking for, and then kind of figured out his own path to awakening, to enlightenment. And that path to awakening led him to see basically how we construct our own story. So what is the basis of reality? What is the basis of what we call ourself? And how can I break that spell? So one thing that's um, interesting is to hear the stories that he tells about his time uh, while he was on this path. So here's one of the stories from that time a little bit. So he says, uh, before my enlightenment, when I was still only an unenlightened bodhisattva, it occurred to me, suppose that I divide my thoughts into two classes. So he's a meditator, he's doing practice like you, and he's doing a little meditative experiment, right? So suppose I divide my thoughts into two classes. I set on one side thoughts of desire, ill will, and cruelty, and set on the other side thoughts of renunciation, loving kindness, and compassion. So he basically divided his thoughts into what he thought were kind of like the helpful and the unhelpful, skillful and skillful, or just these two categories. And then he paid attention and he said, uh, when he he noticed when a thought of uh, ill will arose, this leads to my own affliction, to others' affliction, and to the affliction of both. It obstructs wisdom, it causes difficulty, and it leads away from liberation. And then he noticed when he had the thoughts that were actually uh, of compassion, loving kindness. This does not lead to my own affliction or to others' affliction or to the affliction of both. It aids wisdom, it does not cause difficulty. This leads towards liberation. If I think and ponder upon this thought, even for a night, even for a day, even for a night and day, I see nothing to fear from it. Although with excessive thinking and pondering, I might tire my body. (laughs) So, uh, you know, he divides these thoughts in these two categories and pays attention, like where do these ones lead and where do these other ones lead, right? And then one of his conclusions in this uh, experiment of paying attention was, whatever you frequently think and ponder upon, that will become the inclination of your mind. If you frequently think and ponder upon ill will, then you have abandoned thoughts of loving kindness to cultivate the thought of ill will and your mind will incline towards ill will. So basically, whatever it is that you're thinking about, you're uh, kind of digging that trench in your mind for your mind to fall into more and more, right? And this is happening all the time. You know, it's actually a very sobering uh, thing to think about this. So now here we're in this context of doing like spiritual practice, right? But actually, everybody all over is constantly practicing something, right? So, whatever it is that you're doing, so someone uh, out there who is. just mowing their lawn, someone out there who's helping someone, someone who's, you know, everyone is practicing something in their mind. All the time we're kind of digging the grooves deeper in different channels of our mind. And those are the channels that we tend to fall into more and more, right? So it behooves us to pay attention. So what are these channels that we're digging? You know, like what are these, these habits of mind that we're actually cultivating here? And where are they leading to? So in the beginning of uh, the retreat, we did this practice of taking the precepts, right? And um, sometimes they're done you know, in the beginning of a retreat and then maybe in the end of the retreat, but you kind of don't pay that much attention uh, uh, in between. But actually the precepts are a very deep point of uh, practice, I feel. So it's actually like, it's like a, a kind of PowerPoint in our human life where we can pay attention to, particularly this kind of cultivation of different intentions of heart and mind. So here's another uh, quote about the uh, precept for you. So this is also from the Buddha. So abandoning the taking of life, abstaining from taking in life, taking of life, a noble practitioner, that's you, uh, gives freedom from danger, freedom from animosity, freedom from oppression to limitless numbers of beings. In giving freedom from danger, freedom from animosity, and freedom from oppression to limitless numbers of beings, the practitioner also gains a share in limitless freedom from danger, freedom from animosity, and freedom from oppression. So by practicing these precepts, by refraining from killing or harming living beings, from taking what's not offered, uh, from using sexual energy in a way that's harmful, from using speech in a way that's harmful, and from uh, engaging in drugs or drink that will cause you to do such things too. Uh, you give others this gift of freedom from oppression and you give it to yourself too, right? So you can sense it in this context here where uh, I don't know if where you live, but where I live like you have to use keys on your door all the time, right, to get in and out. And you always have to know like where your wallet is and where you know everything is and It's just very different in a retreat center, you know, to the the way that we can uh, be with each other in a sort of more relaxed way. And oftentimes you can sense the uh, animals having a different relationship too, right? To people when uh, it doesn't seem like people are gonna kill them all the time, right? (laughs) I mean, it really like, of course they relax more. It's nicer for them (laughs) to to not be hunted. So then they can relax more. And then it's also very uh, nice for us. It's more relaxing for us to have this uh, relationship to them. So there was that question this morning about, um, you know, killing insects, I was thinking about that, and um, I've had this uh, uh, opportunity to work with that this uh, week. So Amita and I are um, roommates, Uh, we're staying in a little apartment uh, thing in the teacher housing area, and um, she's a very good roommate, it's very pleasant to be her roommate. But uh, she arrived maybe a day before me and uh, I got to the place and um, you know, I, I told, told her, it seems like there's like a whole lot of insects in here. <laughs> and uh, so then she divulged to me that actually um, the first day she got there she had um, uh, you know, opened all the windows to like air it out and so forth and then gone to uh, hang out with Chaz who also lives in that area. Uh, but a light was on, it got dark and one of, two of the windows didn't have screens. So then, um, you know, the light, the open windows, the coolness of the apartment, so suddenly we had many more roommates of the insect, <laughs> insect variety there. You know. So then it's been this practice, there are all kinds of different insects, like many of which I've not uh, seen before, <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> which, which are sharing our abode. And the um, you know, insects have shorter life, so actually many of them have died even in this Short time, you know. it's essentially, like, oh yeah, their their lifespan is so short, or maybe they didn't get whatever they needed to live. But so there's dead insects and then there's live insects, <laughs> also. <laughs> and um, uh, you can see that like some of them are struggling to get out, right? Like some of them are near the window and they're like, you know, you can see the feel their struggle to like go back to their uh, environment. So then someone's try and catch them and like take them out. And at one point there was one of them who um, you know, I caught him and I took him out and then in closing the door I could there was another like long legged kind of daddy long legs kind of guy um, who actually as I closed the door I got his like leg caught in the door. And then he was like struggling and I could see this struggle and then I saw what it was and I opened the door so I could get his leg out. And then uh, he put it near where I imagine his little mouth is, right? It's like, and it just reminded me of like when you hit your finger with a hammer and like ouch, you know, you lick it like that. Uh, so it's like, oh yeah, like these insects like also have this experience of fear of pain, you know. So it's actually easy for us to kill them, right? You know, it, like uh, small insects, you can just go like this, right? And their life is over, right? In fact, do that right now if you're uh, like put your hands like that and imagine there's an insect right there, right? So you're about to kill an insect. So you can feel the power there, right? There's like power, like all you have to do is go like this, right? Boom. Right, and they're gone, right? Uh, and yet, like, why shouldn't you do that? Like, why shouldn't you do that, right? So this insect, it's like, you just met it, but you're like, oh, your life is inconvenient to me, right? <laughs> you're annoying to me, right? Uh, it would be really easy for me to kill you like this, right? It wouldn't take too much of my uh, you know, life force to do that, and then I can kind of move on, right? Um, so you know, what, what is it that, that should stop us from doing that? So part of it is this noticing, like, what's the mind state that you're cultivating when you're doing that? Right? Like what's the state of heart and mind that you're cultivating in that moment of that, right? So there is this sense of power about it, you know? I mean, it would be so easy for us, like why not, right? But the power is, this, is also this sense of cruelty. There's like this little t- thing of cruelty or of like ignoring in some way, right? It's like sometimes you can't even be present for that moment of the actual death, I find. You know, it's, you can't even be there for it, so you have to like look away or something like that. And there's so many times in, in the world also where this happens, and where the shoes on the other foot, right? Uh, meaning, uh, you know, where people treat other people in that way, right? So as someone who pays attention in the world, uh, you can see that there are many different instances where one group of human beings is treating another human being, group of human beings, like you are uh, inconvenient for me, right? Like you shouldn't be here, and I have the power to knock you out, slash, kill you, slash, relocate you, right? Uh, and I'm gonna use that. And it happens, right, over and over in so many different ways, right? Uh, In ways that are really heartbreaking. And when I see those things happening, I think to myself, like, how can someone do that? Like, how can someone do that to another person? And then, you know, when I hold my hands like that, like, I know, you know, like I know in that moment is like our opportunity to choose. Like, what do we wanna add to the world there? You know, that's our, our choice, our time when it's like, you meet someone who has a gun, all it takes to shoot a gun is just like dink, right? Little finger pressure like that, right? It's not it doesn't take that much, right? Click, tink, right? Uh, but in that moment, like you have the opportunity to show mercy, compassion, right? Or to go about what's more convenient for you, right? And to dig that groove in your mind. So which groove do you want to dig in your mind, right? So it's more inconvenient, absolutely, to like cup the insect and take it out and you know all that stuff, but. Uh, think about both what you're cultivating in your own heart and mind and what do you want to add to the world you know a world in which there is so much cruelty right and suffering so just reflect on that that maybe you know feel like an over dramatization of our interactions with insects but in some ways it's not right and when you're on retreat i think you can sink down to a place in which you can connect with life on that level and see you know what is it that i want to do right then when you leave here you're often moving too fast you're moving too fast to pay attention to that. So it's just like, yeah, this is inconvenient. Think, dink, dink, right? But remember, then you can remember, this is where the things like precepts are helpful. You know, what, what is my commitment to myself? What do I wanna cultivate? You know, how do I wanna be in the world? What do I wanna add to the world, right? So this practice of metta is, is one in which it's a loving kindness, it's a kindness, it's a friendliness, and it's regardless of what that being can do back for you. So this is the unconditional part, which is different than many sort of more contractual love arrangements, right? So that insect's not gonna do anything for you per se that you know, although it's part of the same sort of uh, life system in some ways. So many times we have this idea, like I love this person, but then there's kind of secretly in fine print, like unless you do the following five things, right? (laughs) So unless you, uh, you know, leave me, call me this, steal my car, do this, you know, like do these things, it's like, Break, you know, date someone else, whatever, right? So there's kind of this secret list that we have that's like, oh, if these things happen, then you're out, right? And with the, the metta, it's not that you don't have a, ability to recognize people are doing something that's a problem and that you don't want to be around them. So that's wisdom, right? So, and wisdom and love go together. So the loving kindness is actually a strength and a protection for yourself and for others. The, the origins of this practice is actually a time in the uh, time in the Buddha when um, there were a bunch of monks who went off to meditate in some forest. Uh, 500 uh, different uh, monks and nuns went off. And uh, they got spooked, basically, by these forest devas, these sort of forest spirits. And they come running back to the Buddha and said like, oh, we can't really meditate there because uh, there are all these spooks there, and, you know. And so then he said, well, here, go back and do this practice of loving kindness, of wishing well for them. like." Go back doing this as you're going there uh, and that will change things. So they did. So they went back uh, and did this basically some version of this chant that you're doing in the evening of wishing well. So may you be happy, may you be safe, may you be free from suffering, right? And that actually shifted the relationship with these different spirits such that they actually became benevolent, right? So metta is like a protection And as we practice it, there actually are these different benefits that are classically uh, mentioned about this. So if you practice loving kindness, if you cultivate this in your heart, uh, you sleep happily and wake easily. Uh, You will not have bad dreams. You have deep sleep, pleasant dreams. You become dear to human beings, so humans like you. So of course, because you're a loving person, right? Humans like you. Uh, Also uh, animals like you because right? you're not gonna harm them, right? Um, it leads to uh, concentration. Uh, you're protected by the devas said. You have a beautiful facial expression of serenity, and then when you die, you will die peacefully. There's another one that's traditionally listed that is you become immune from poison, fire, and weapons, but I have not tested that one, so I can't <laughs> tell you that. And it may be when you're a very strong state of metta, so. <laughs> Uh, but it's it's true, I think, that there are all these benefits in this way, right? That uh, you practice this sense of kindness, and certainly, like other people, notice that, right? So if you walk into a room and someone's really angry in that room, even if that person doesn't say anything, you can kind of sense that, right? Or if you get onto a bus and there's someone who's really uh, agitated, even if they haven't said anything, like you can kind of feel that energy, right? So similarly, When we cultivate this practice of metta, of friendliness, loving kindness, we actually are able to be a force of this energy of metta in the world, right? And people will react, right? Like that'll give this uh, a different sense to people of your relationship to them. So it's said that actually one of the greatest gifts that you can give to someone is this sense that they have nothing to fear in your presence so that they can actually trust you completely. So that they don't feel like, oh, if I say the wrong thing, they'll get mad at me, or they'll hit me, or you know, they'll reject me, right? It's like, oh yeah, this person is someone with whom like, I can feel safe, I can feel comfortable. Right? So the meta itself doesn't have to be like a huge um, you know, fireworks kind of uh, a thing. I mean, sometimes it can be, but sometimes it's just a friendliness, a friendliness towards others and a friendliness towards yourself a lack of ill will, if you will. Even lack of ill will is considered metta, right? In fact, it's interesting that many times in the suttas, they describe metta as non-ill will, and they describe uh, compassion as non-cruelty. Right? So I've, I thought at first like, well, why is that? That's kind of a strange turn of phrase, like not this, not this, right? Instead of saying outright love, compassion. So I think the reason is because if you actually remove or see through those arisings of ill will or those arisings of cruelty and you let them go, then what's left there actually is this sense of connection. So you, know, you could debate like, well, are we basically evil people who occasionally have loving thoughts? You know, are we loving people who occasionally have uh, difficult you know, evil thoughts, right? So my experience and in the teachings also is that actually the, there's a purity of our consciousness. There's really a purity of heart and mind that's there And then we get duped by these passing clouds of ill will, of anger, uh, of cruelty. We believe them, we get on that train, we follow it, and then we wake up somewhere, right? So if we can learn to see those things, see through them, let them go, then what's left there is actually uh, these states of uh, wholesomeness. So, but we can of course help them along by the cultivation So I got this um, email uh, a couple of days ago and the subject line said, um, for your kind attention, beloved. Yeah. And it was from someone I didn't know. <laughs> you know what this is. So then, but, you know, so I looked at it, then it was like, you know, please send $10,000 to this bank account and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So it was a spam, you know, like a scam thing. Uh, but even that, like there was a second when I read that email when uh, my heart just was like, oh, beloved, you know? <laughs> For my kind attention you know uh, so i noticed like oh it has that that effect on you you know even if you know in a second later i knew it was like a scam but it's like oh look look how that that affects me you know even just that little bit of kindness right and it's true for all of us right like what the the attitude is that we have towards ourselves and towards other people you know it's, it can have such an effect even just a very small uh small bit of that uh, mental So metta is part of um, a, a configuration of different uh, states that's taught in this tradition, which are called the Brahma Viharas or the divine abodes, right? So it's kind of like a roadmap that you can use uh, for uh, your heart. So the basic stance one is this of general friendliness, so general well-wishing for other beings, right? Loving kindness. And then if you encounter someone who is suffering It seems not appropriate to say like, may you be happy when someone's obviously not happy, right? So to recognize that suffering that they're in and then to practice compassion. So when a general state of well-wishing turns towards uh, being in suffering, it's like, oh, may you be free from suffering? Oh yeah, that's hard for you. I care about your pain, that's difficult, right? So that aspect of compassion. The opposite of compassion is a state of uh, cruelty, right? Hurting someone. And then with each of these, there's a state that's kind of like close to it, but not actually that. So with compassion, the one that's close but not that is called like the near enemy is pity. Right? So what that is is that uh, when you pity someone, there's this sense of separation, right? Like I'm up here and you're down there and I feel sorry for you down there, right? So with compassion is this state of connection. Like, oh, yeah, you're suffering and I know what that's like and I'm connected to you. I'm, I'm there with you in the suffering. I'm not up here, you're down there, right? Then if you encounter someone who's happy, there's a state that's called appreciative joy. And this is kind of a radical one to wrap your head around sometimes. Uh, appreciative joy, mudita. So this one is actually being happy for someone's happiness. So if someone's already happy, then you know, to say may you be happy also seems not like they're already happy, right? So we wish like, oh, may your happiness continue. May your happiness increase. So you connect their happiness and uh, wish them continuation of that. So the opposite of this is like jealousy, envy, right? So when you see someone who's happy, what is your reaction? So it's good to see, like, is my reaction one of, like, oh, I wish I had that, or, oh, shoot, you got that, then I couldn't get that, or, you know? There often is this sense of comparing mind that dogs us, you know, and which really makes us uh, suffer. So we can't be happy for someone's happiness. So even the fact that there's not really a good word in translation is a sign of how rare this is. As a state or even an idea, right, in our culture and in the English language, this appreciative joy. Right? So this one you can practice uh, by paying attention to someone who's happy. So uh, for me, like dogs, in fact, are a very good subject for this, right? Because when they're happy, they're very visibly happy, right? So they wag their tail a lot, and uh, and when you wish this um, mudita, this happiness, with someone else, you don't actually have to like what they're liking. So it's just the fact that they're happy, right? So the dog is probably happy, like it found a piece of old uh, pizza or something, you know, <laughs> and uh, it's like phenomenally happy about that. And you don't have to like be happy that you would find that too, but just the fact that the dog is happy, right? So this actually frees you up to be happy a lot more. So it said, you know, uh, that if you can practice this, you actually increase your chances of being happy by six billion times, right? So you're not just happy when good things happen to you, but you actually can be happy when anyone that you encounter is happy and connect with that, right? So cultivating that state along. So we have the basic metta, then compassion when there's suffering. Then you have this uh, mudita, appreciative joy. And then the underlying state of all of them is uh, one of equanimity. So that's the fourth of the Brahma Viharas, is developing a sense of equanimity. And equanimity is actually like a balance with whatever is happening. So balance with the vicissitudes of life, balance with the changes that happen for yourself and for other people. So as Temple was describing last night, our life is a constant uh, shift of these different happenings of pleasant things, unpleasant things, different things all out of our control happening. So what is our relationship to those uh, experiences? So you can get kind of knocked around by them a lot Uh, and cultivating this aspect of equanimity is a way to develop some balance with that. Now when you're developing it for other people, it's like recognizing that we can wish well for them. Uh, we can have compassion for them, we can be happy for them, but actually like everyone is really on their own life path, right? So as much as you wish well for people that you love, like you really can't control them. You can't make them do this, you can't make them do that. Right? Everyone is following their own life and everyone is, uh, of reaping the seeds of their own karma, as they say classically, right? So all beings are heirs to their own karma and their happiness does not depend upon your wishes, but upon their own actions, right? So that said, the metta, you know, sometimes people ask, well, if I do this practice of these heart cultivations, like, is it gonna have an effect on someone else, right? Like, if I spend an hour wishing well for my uh, grandmother or my friend, you know, are they gonna feel it? Is that what it's about, right? So the main aspect of this as a spiritual practice is actually cultivation of your own heart. So does it have an effect? Yes, it has an effect first and foremost right here. Right? So in the uh, digging the trenches in your own heart in the wholesome states, right? loving kindness. Right? But then also you know, there are many stories of they're actually having some effect on someone, whether you know, in close by proximity or distant. But that's something that you don't worry about so much when you're cultivating the practice. The practice itself is just cultivating that intention, right? So in cultivating the intention, you just do the best that you can, right? So you actually don't have to worry about even every time that you say the phrase, like, may you be happy, may you be well, you know, is there some explosion of feeling or not? Don't worry about that, just keep doing that cultivation. May you be happy, may you be well, with as much sincerity as you can, and that's the practice. That's the practice, and being patient with it, uh, just doing it with a certain kind of devotion, actually, uh, is actually doing a lot of important work, right? So I I mentioned that I did this practice myself for a long time, uh, both in the meditation hall um, and at home, and then also in my life. So one of the good places to do this is in uh, uh, transit, right? So when you're on some kind of journey, which actually a lot of our life is in transit, right? So I live in uh, San Francisco, and I still live in Boston. So both places with a lot of, uh, you know, the T or the Muni or transportation systems. So it's actually a really good practice to do when you're sitting on the public transport system. Yeah. You know? So you can just sit there and do like sort of guerrilla meta, you know. So nobody needs to know you're doing it right. So you, so you, you know, start it up and then uh, decide like whoever walks through the door of the bus like I'm going to wish them well you know uh, and then whoever walks in next and whoever walks in next right. And it's really interesting to see you know how uh, how difficult that is or how easy that is with different people like how someone comes in and there's already like a judgment or something like that right about them and having said the first thing to them right. And also noticing sort of how does that shift my relationship to people in this vehicle, right? So what is my mind doing usually when it's just hanging out, right? So maybe memories, maybe daydreams, maybe you know, some other self-absorbed whatnot, right? So it's like shifting it in some way to actually expand the idea to like, let's consider these other people and actually incline the heart towards well-wishing. So it's actually a radical thing to consider, like, oh, anytime I'm in an airplane or a bus or even in traffic in a car, like I can actually have this different relationship to people around me, you know? Like I can actually have this relationship that's one of well-wishing, of like general benevolence, you know? as opposed to having a relationship of uh, antagonism, right? Or, like I'm here, you're there, you're possibly in my way, You know, you're neutral or in my way. Like, those are the two (laughs) categories, you know. (laughs) I was like, oh, what if I actually just have some generally friendly attitude towards you? Like, oh, may you be well. Like, I don't know what your story is. I don't know what happened to you today. I don't know who your parents were. I don't know what your struggles are. But as a human being, like, I know that you have some of those. You have all of that stuff, right? Same as me. So, may you be well. That's it. You know, to give them like everything that you own you know to be you know but just like oh yeah can it can i be well can, may you be well right just as i wish to be well may you be well inclination like that right? this meta is also like a protection i find um, from times when i feel afraid so i actually use this practice when uh, i feel fear come up so the first thing is to recognize that there's fear there Um, And then I actually, like now it sort of automatically kicks in a little bit that I start doing this practice uh, for myself, like, okay, may I be well, may I be happy, may I be safe, right, as a protection. And it's interesting to see, like, well, what else do I use as a protection, right? So in this case, it's like love is a protection, but otherwise, oftentimes we think, like, violence is my protection, hatred is my protection, you know, Uh, distancing is my protection, blacking out is my protection, right? So what are we taking as our protection, and does it really work? I had an experience of um, practicing metta when uh, I I did a lot of retreats here, and um, when I finished college, I did a three-month retreat here, and then stayed on for another, basically the rest of the year, and then went on to uh, Sri Lanka, where my family is originally from, and practiced in some uh, monasteries for a couple years there. And this is a very unpopular move with my relatives, um, who thought I should be like getting a job and getting married and you know this and that, and um, who felt no compunction about telling me their opinions uh, about this, as many of you probably experience with your families, um, they feel it their duty to tell you uh, very specifically what you should be doing with your life and, you know, how you should be and so on, right? That sort of wanes after they see that it doesn't really work, by the way. Yeah. So <laughs> after many, many years of uh, futility in that area. But um, I remember at one particular time, um, there was an uncle of mine who I was um, staying with them and um, he didn't like that I was doing all this meditation and I was coming back from the monastery and spending some time there. So he picked me up at the bus station and we'd usually have this um, somewhat antagonistic relationship where he would feel compelled to give me advice and I would feel compelled to resist, right? Um, And uh, I I had been uh, studying the metta uh, during that time and I read this one teaching of the Buddha that was like, monks, even if bandits were to savagely sever you limb from limb with a saw, even then, whoever of you harbors ill will at heart would not be upholding my teaching. Instead, one should abide with a heart imbued with loving kindness, vast, sublime, and immeasurable like the sky, wishing well to all beings." So that's a pretty tall uh, order, right, and savagely <laughs> sawed you limb from limb. But I found it very inspiring, you know, as an aspiration. So I thought, oh, okay, I'll try this, right. So I memorized this passage, um, and uh, I knew he was going to start up with this. So we're sitting in the car, and he starts up with this like, harangue, you know, you should do this, you should do that. And uh, I kept uh, kept this uh, passage going, and actually felt this cultivation of metta. And um, I didn't react to him, and uh, you know, he went on like you know, twenty minutes, thirty minutes. Did you know, we get home? And going on and on. And I just wasn't reacting in the way that I usually was. Um, but actually, with this passage, I felt sort of connected, sort of underneath of the harangue in some ways, you know. Uh, and then at a certain point, before we got home, he just stopped and he said, "I haven't been annoying you, have I?" You know. <laughs> and it was such a radically different. Uh, Thing Like, that was not his relationship to at all, that he cared whether he was annoying me. But I think, you know, shifting what my uh, stance was towards him, uh, it, it was kind of unnerving too I think to him, you know, that it, we usually had this sort of like battleground stations that we took up sort of habitually and I stepped away from mine for a moment. Um, you know, as well as that reading this passage was just gave me a sense of humor about it because he wasn't sawing me limb from limb, you know, he was just lecturing me, you know. So, I was like, okay, so if you saying when people are sawing you limb from limb, you should wish them well. At least when annoying uncle is lecturing, you should be able to <laughs> hold a little bit, like, from ill will. So, um, so, it's good to try this practice whenever, you know, you feel moved to. Like, use it creatively uh, in your life, in instances in which you feel like, yeah, we're, we, I habitually get into this thing with someone, right? it's almost like we're kind of frozen in this script of like antagonism. You know, how can I shift that? How can I get out of that in some way? So also it's good to practice this uh, here on the retreat, right? And uh, metta is in many ways kind of the other side of the coin from uh, mindfulness. So metta and mindfulness are very close uh, in my uh, experience. So while the actual practice of metta is, you know, different in saying the phrases per se, having that feeling of friendliness towards your experience is a really important piece of the mindfulness practice. So the mindfulness practice often can also be referred to as heartfulness practice, right? So meeting with open heartedness, whatever it is that's arising in your experience, right? And so just as in this uh, meta practice, we do the practice starting from what's our, our benefactor or someone who it's easy for us to wish well for, a friend, Someone who's sort of neutral to us, we'll get to that one uh, tomorrow. And then to someone who's difficult. Similarly, in your experience during the day, you have all these different kinds of experiences, right? And probably you can even uh, notice different times in your life in which you yourself are the very beloved one, the friend, the neutral person, and then sometimes the enemy, right? Where one arises in your own experience is actually something that you meet in those different ways. So one way to uh, practice this is to notice when you're doing mindfulness, so like what is the attitude that I have in my mind right now? Right? So what's kind of the, um, the attitude of the awareness? So is the awareness one that's kind of like a ready to pounce on it awareness? You know, is the awareness have some antagonism already towards my experience? Which is easy to have happen, particularly if something difficult is going on, like if there's some pain in your body or if a difficult emotion is arising, right? Like, what's my relationship to that experience, right? Am I trying to be aware of it so that it will go away, right? Am I trying to uh, be aware of it only very slightly because I really don't want it to be there, right? Uh, Am I being aware of it, but it's with like a clinical distance awareness, right? Am I being aware of it with kind of a sledgehammer ready to knock it out, right? You know, sometimes that's there too. So what's the quality of that awareness and is there a shift I can make to being more relaxed, being more friendly with that. So one thing that can help sometimes is to think about like, if someone else were presenting this to me, how would I be with it, right? So this metta practice is like a friendliness. So if you had a good friend who was coming to you with some experience, and they were like, I'm really lonely, or like my foot really hurts, or like, I'm, I'm just so tired, here like how would you be with that right how would you be with your good friend so you'd want to be a good listener right you'd probably be patient with them right you'd probably be forgiving with them right so even if it was like the 10th time that the same thing happened to them that day right uh, Mm -hmm. you wouldn't mind right So, you know, same for yourself, it's like, oh, no, not another time of uh, anger coming up or not another time of that memory, like enough already, right? But if you really loved a friend of yours and they were going through this, and even the fact that this was recurring was difficult for them, like you would want to listen to them, you would want to be there with them, right? So in that same way, we can actually have this attitude of being our own friend, you know, being your own best friend in some ways. So in the practice of awareness, it's kind of like asking yourself repeatedly, not in words, but in experience, like, how are you, like what's going on, right? And then answering the question experientially, so not in words, but in, through your awareness, in your experience. So just as if you stuck your hand in the water and you knew the water's wet, the water's cold, something like that, right? So you'd be aware of that because you know that from your own uh, direct knowledge of that. So similarly, you can uh, know that with this quality of kindness, of openness, right? There's an intimacy in this kind of practice. So Temple was referring to this uh, yesterday too. And you can have this kind of intimacy with anything. So oftentimes we think intimacy as like, you know, candles and uh, like flowers and you know, (laughs) all this kind of thing. But actually intimacy is just like a closeness, you know, like a closeness. And I also feel like it's a realness, you know, like being real. With yourself, uh, and when I do uh, practice, and just in general in life, but particularly during a period of practice when I know things might come up that might be difficult, I kind of make a pact with myself: like, let me try and be as honest with myself as I can be, right? Let me be as real with myself as I can be. Right? So, regardless of what I feel like I need, I'm going to say in the group or, you know, tell someone else after the retreat: like, let me be real with myself by what's really here, right? Uh, and allow whatever is there to be there, right? as much as possible. So how close can I be to myself? How close can I be to my own experience? And in that case, there can be an intimacy with anything. So anything that arises that you actually can have contact with can be uh, beautiful, not in the same way as beautiful, like pretty beautiful, but beautiful in that it's real. It's like what's really there. And there's a, a connection with your own life. So even loneliness for example so loneliness arises in your experience and how can you meet that loneliness with this attitude of some friendliness right so loneliness is actually a very common human experience right um, but for some of us it's a difficult one to be with we don't want to feel lonely right or then there's an overlay on that that's like I shouldn't feel lonely because I'm here with a hundred people or I shouldn't you know like all this stuff I shouldn't feel lonely because I have many friends or you know but actually it's a very poignant and real experience of the human condition that you can contact and feel. So what does that feel like in my body right, to be lonely? What does it feel like in my heart? What does it feel like in my mind? So actually just being there with it in that way is this aspect of connection and of kindness. Right? So the kindness is the kind of kindness that you show to a friend when you just ask them, like, Are you, like what's going on, and they say I'm lonely. And the kind of kindness where you don't have to fix it then, like you're not trying to make them not feel that, right? And you're not trying to make them feel bad about feeling that, or you're not waiting for them to come up with something happy, right? It's just that, like you just sit with them for as long as they need to be sat with with that feeling of loneliness, right? And then sometimes you can reflect like, oh yeah, that loneliness is actually part of sort of this human experience, right? So loneliness is actually something that's not just me, myself, right? which with that loneliness often there's a story, like only I am alone, right? <laughs> Everyone else is not lonely, only I am alone, this has only happened to me, right? So then there's a little self-pity drain that we start to go down, yeah. But actually, like at any given time in the world, many people are lonely, right? So there's like some kid who has nobody to eat lunch with them in school, and there's an old person who's in a home who doesn't feel loved, right? There's someone who is separated from their uh, family on some trip, right? There's someone who's in prison, right? So life is this constant kaleidoscope of like these shifting states. And here it's loneliness and that lands in your consciousness. Then it shifts in its sadness. Then it shifts in its anger. Then it shifts in its joy. It shifts in its excitement. It shifts, 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 right? So all of us are part of this human experience in that way. what we're asked to do is just meet whatever it is that's there. So can I meet this with friendliness? Can I meet with this with openness? It doesn't mean that you wish that it would be there for the rest of your life. It doesn't mean that you would give it as a gift to a friend, right? But just that basic acceptance, like, yeah, this is what's happening. And in that direct contact with that, in being able to be close to that, is actually this beauty in the truth of what your experience is, where it actually doesn't matter, in some ways, what's happening, right? It's like that truth of that connection which is important. And of course, the more that you're able to expand that, the more you're actually able to be with different things in your own experience, then the more you're actually able to be there with other people too, right? So the more you're actually able to be there to see, like, oh, okay, so I'm not afraid of fear. I'm not afraid of sadness. I'm not afraid of loneliness. I'm not afraid of excitement. And for all of us, there's kind of a different configuration in our mind of what we've decided we can be with and not be with, right? So in the the setting here, you you get to expand that. You get to see like, okay, so what what do I take as good news, what do I take as bad news, and can I actually be there with some kind of openness, right? Even closing down, can I be with that with openness, right? So sometimes something happens and you don't want it to be there, and you want to knock it out. You want it to be away. So then you recognize like, okay, so this is actually contraction. This is not wanting this to be here. This is what it's like to like hate my emotional life right now, you know? This is just what that is, okay? This is like wanting to be somewhere else, wanting to be someone else. What does that feel like, right? So then can we open to that experience with some kindness? Like, oh look, it's hard. It's hard to want to have a different life, right? Because <laughs> it's not happening, right? <laughs> it's, it's hard. Like, oh, okay, I can be with that then too, right? So just doing the best that you can with that uh, as much as you can. So as, as you practice this uh, loving-kindness, metta, friendliness, uh, one of my teachers called it unstoppable friendliness, uh, it actually is a radical thing because when you, when you think about how you go about your life, for many of us it's this process of actually wanting to find that from someone else, right? So it's like I wanna find someone else who loves me. Like I wanna find someone else who values me and who can tell me that they think I look great and who can tell me that They like my personal qualities uh, and who'll be forgiving of me and who'll think I'm funny and all this stuff, right? So you actually have the potential to have that person right here and now, which is you, right? (laughs) Like you've actually already met that person who can be there for you uh, and that's yourself, right? So uh, here's a chance to practice that and um, you actually can be that uh, benefactor, like that uh, conduit for kindness, for love, or general friendliness for yourself and also for anyone else who is in your uh, vicinity. And that's a powerful thing, right? Like it's an incredible powerful thing to be able to be that kind of conduit, right? So how do we get there is just by the practice, right? By the practice, by connecting in fact with our suffering, with our vulnerability, by being in connection with what it's like to be a human being. And as we're in connection with what it's like to be a human being, feeling more and more that connection with others, right? So on one level, we are seemingly separate, or visually separate. Uh, on a relative level, it's good to know that and to know like which clothes are yours, which shoes are yours, you know, where you sit, that kind of thing. And then on another level, we actually all are connected. Right? So at different times in uh, your life, you probably have like, tapped into that in some way. And both of those things are true in different ways. So the metta practice actually helps us to accept that level, access that level of connection too. So I encourage you to do this practice um, as often as you like. We have this uh, you know, official period of metta in the afternoon, but you can also kind of pepper your day with this too. So you can choose another period to do metta if you like. Doing metta practice for yourself is always a really, really, really good thing. You cannot do metta for yourself too much, right? So just doing a whole period of practice like that for yourself is really, really good. Also, you can try doing that when you're in bed, like right before you're going to sleep. So doing uh, this practice of wishing well for yourself. When you uh, shower yourself, you can pay attention to like, oh, like here is actually an aspect when I am taking care of myself. So what's my attitude when I do that? Like, am I doing it kind of neutrally as if I'm like, you know, sweeping the road or, you know, like, am I do that with some uh, attitude of kindness, you know, like, oh, look, this body that's, like, dragged me around through this retreat all day, like, oh, uh, some gratitude, <laughs> you know, and some kindness when I uh, clean myself up here, right? Likewise, when you feed yourself, right, when you're eating, uh, you can think about how you're doing that. So, uh, you know, if you're feeding someone who you love, like, if there's a little kid who you like and you're trying to feed them, right, how would you feed them, right? Um, or someone who's sick who you're feeding, right? So with kindness, with compassion, with love. So in the same way, you can actually feed yourself, right? You know, wipe your chin, you know, feed yourself, right? It's <laughs> like that, like just with some kindness and, uh, and sweetness, right? So actually just paying attention to yourself is an act of love, too. So the more that you're able to pay attention to yourself in this way with this kind of uh, just, you know, either it can go from like low-grade fl- friendliness to full-on, you know, full-blown love. Um, all of that is good and will help to dig this trench in your heart deeper and deeper. So one more quote for me, which is from a teacher named uh, Nisargardatta Maharaj. It's a connection of the wisdom and the love. So they're often talked about as the two wings of the bird in practice, so you need both of them to fly, right? Wisdom tells me I'm nothing. Love tells me I'm everything. Between these two, my life flows. So I wish you well with your practice. I wish you friendliness towards your own experience of body and mind, I wish you liberation. So hearing the sound of the bell, you can connect again to your own experience. So hearing the sound of the bell, you can let go of the words, you can allow what's useful to stay with you and let go all the rest. Hearing the sound of the bell, you can return to your own heart and attend to your experience with kindness. Thank you for your attention.